everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. Today we are continuing our best performances on our Oscar series. With 1996's Shine. Pianist David Helfgott, driven by his father and teachers, has a breakdown. Years later, he returns to the piano, to popular, if not critical, acclaim. The budget for this movie was $5.5 million. Wow. The gross for this movie was $35,811,509. Well, that's very specific. When they get the gross, they get the full box office receipt, so I get it down to the dollar. I I always round it. That's a respectable return, but it's still a very small movie. For for as small a movie as it is, and for as few theaters as I guarantee it was playing in, that's probably a huge amount of money. Well, I mean, it got six times its money back, so that's pretty good. What do you think about this random Australian movie? It's very good. Yes. It is very good. It's a little slow, and there was far less Jeffrey Rush than I expected. Like, it's more... There's more Noah Taylor than there is Jeffrey Rush. I remembered there being a lot more Jeffrey Rush when I first saw this movie, Mm -hmm. but I think that's just because of his performance and how impactful it is, because I I feel like they do... They evenly split those three actors. I think it's just because the story... Mm does focus on each of those three moments in his life. Yeah. No, and no. try and in many ways does spend an equal amount of time okay. with those moments. Let's talk about our writers. Mm-hmm. First we have it's either Jan or Jan Sardi, S A R D I, who mostly worked in Australian film and TV before, obviously. His other real claim to fame is that he adapted the notebook for the screen. Okay. He didn't write, he didn't get the screenplay credit, oh. but he did get the adaptation credit. That makes sense for me. Also, our director for this film and screenplay writer, Scott Hicks, who does get some minor writing credits here and there, also did a lot of early work with NXS before oh, their okay. like big breakout success in America. He did a lot of their early videos. Yeah, NXS is Australia, right? Yeah. Okay. This was his first major screenplay produced, mm-hmm. and he also directed this movie, Super Fucking Australian. Yes, absolutely. Other than some of our big name actors, one of the big things with the writing is Sardi and Hicks tried to give this movie, they defined it as the distinctive musical structure. They assembled yep. it like it was a concerto. Mm-hmm. And so you with read the that callbacks the callbacks and the code. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I, I noticed that. Which seems like you can nail it on the head, but there's something about this movie that's so it earnest. It still flows really well. The beginning is a little disorienting because you're like, huh? What? What? Where am I? Exactly. But then when it tight when we come back to it, you're like, oh, okay, great. And then you just keep going, which is also great. So I mean like the writing's good. David's speech as an adult is very complicated. So I'm really glad I never tried to see this in a theater because I would not have gotten a single word. Yeah. So I'm thank thankful for the subtitles. Clearly they wrote those jokes in. Like yeah. the concentration camp bits and stuff like that. And I know much of that was lifted probably from personal conversations with, with David Health. Probably. But the amount of humor that is there is so it's it's almost unnerving how much humor they're able to pack into a story that feels I mean, this is before the age of the biopic for us. Yeah. And and to have a biopic for somebody who is 
In particular circles, they'd probably know this name. But for the wide, you know, movie audience, probably not. For the world. Yeah. I mean, he was a giant deal in Australia. Yeah. But none of us knew it. No, I'm sure. Well, I mean, he, he did go to the Royal Music yes. School. So I'm sure people who study piano know this guy. Mm-hmm. They know all about him. Of course they do. But nobody else would. So, I mean, that's great. And, I mean, he has a a really tragic life, but it has had such a happy um, conclusion. I, I don't know. Has he passed away? No, he's still alive. Okay, great. There's wonderful joy in, you know, we get to the point where we see him after this total mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so often we go through these horribly dark periods. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like almost a snap. And yep. all of a sudden we just see him full of life and joy despite I, dealing with this struggle. Like, I love that scene with him, uh, with Beryl at the piano, because she's just playing to play, and he's just, it's like this thing, it's just like, I have this compulsion to come to this piano, and I know I'm not supposed to, I'm not supposed to, but he just can't, and then when he gets there, he's just happy. He's just happy. He's not even playing, but he's happy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm, this is this is where I'm supposed to, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Let's kind of morph that into Scott Hicks as yeah. director. Mm-hmm. This was a 10-year odyssey for him. He okay, first saw first David Helfgott in 1986. Okay, so ten, yeah, 10 years, yeah. And from that point on, planned on making a movie. And okay. it just kept taking that long to get the story done. I, I believe it. That um, that could be a really hard sell without bigger name writers or yeah i I, yeah i see that big he he like uh, immediately approached helfgott's wife cynthia and Mm -hmm. cynthia was like who are you and why are you talking about making a movie because it's not like he had done anything but he was just that inspired by this story Mm -hmm. the one thing that they say about this story is it is very intentionally impressionistic Mm -hmm. that they said if we were to try to make a full story of david's life it would be a 20-hour docudrama like there's sense. so much shit. Yeah, there's that just a lot went on that there's no way to do it in an in an hour forty where people would be entertained. Yeah, so they picked out the big moments that really shaped his life or uh, that period of time. So like I get like that you know finding the teacher who really helped make him grow the fight with his father and leaving to go to school doing the rock three. Which I love that that's so they call it. It's, I mean, I know it's the in shorthand, but it just makes me really happy. And then that being the thing that causes him to truly have a breakdown. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. And then him finding the piano again. Like, those are like, we don't need to know all the nitty gritty. Like, your dad was a horrible, abusive man. And I also loved, like, at the, like, I love, this broke my heart. But at the end, he's like, I did it. I won. I won. I won. Mm-hmm. That was all he was trying to do is win for his dad. Yep. <laughs> like there, I didn't cry during the movie but thinking about it makes me want to cry it is one of those movies that in no way is it trying to be inspirational it's subject matter just is naturally it's a triumph of the spirit type of movie yeah it's one of those but we talked about Ray a little bit right mm-hmm. and a movie like Ray was actively trying to manipulate the audience mm-hmm. to feel that way now, Ray's a great movie, don't oh, get me it wrong. it is, and Jamie Foxx had a wonderful performance. But it's structured to mm-hmm. actually manipulate your feelings oh, yeah. to and feel this, that way. this isn't. This doesn't. No, and I, I think this is where the music, the idea of the music structure 
Yes. Is is that it's more like, let's go on this journey. We're going to tell you a story. Yeah. We're going to go this way. It's a lot more theatrical, actually. There is a little bit of controversy. Margaret, his sister, mm-hmm. wrote a book and claims none of this ever happened. So, like, not, her father wasn't abusive, blah, blah, blah. The screenwriters have said, we have said from the beginning, we over-exaggerated certain things. Mm-hmm. We created a very fictional environment to tell this story. Mm-hmm. But every, but they said, every single detail in this movie Came was based in some form or fashion on, on David's story and what he told us. And you know what? I think both of those things can be true. We know he suffers from mental illness. Yes. So his perception of things can be skewed. Maybe his father wasn't as violent or emotionally abusive, but he definitely was abusive. Yes. There's no doubt in my mind. So, like, I can understand from her perspective, she may have, like, his her dad being really strict and, like, you got second, you should have gotten first, so this is a complete failure. You leaving me is a complete failure. Like, I can see her not, him, her not seeing that as abusive, but for him, that is so damaging. Like, I, I can see how that can be both sides. Both things can be true. Now we can get into the cast and the masterful, masterful Jeffrey Rush. I mean, the man never shows up on screen not doing his job. I am sad that more people haven't seen this movie because I know it's an under-the-radar movie. Well, and it's a slow film. It's it's small. It's Australian. It, yeah, no, and, and it, it came and went in the 90s. It's funny you keep saying that, and I just kept getting the feeling of it's Muriel's Wedding. This feels like Muriel's Wedding, which is another Australian film. It's wonderful. Yeah. It is a good movie, and Jeffrey Rush is... Fabulous, because I don't feel like he's mocking. He's not imitating. I know he doesn't feel like he's imitating. It really feels like he's he is trying to internalize mm-hmm. and build a very real recreation of David Helfgott. It's fine. It's when I watch Jeffrey Rush play play David, I don't feel like I'm watching somebody with mental illness. Yes. I feel like, and maybe that's because I've been around enough creative people that I've seen this as just as part of their process, but I just see somebody who is an eccentric artist. I mean, right. he, he does have some mental illness. I don't want to like minimize that, but the artist part comes first in his portrayal. Well, I think what's hard is we've had very, very specific signposts for different types of mental illness in films. And how they're portrayed. And Helfgott is schizophrenic. Mm-hmm completely suffers from symptoms of schizophrenia, mm-hmm. but not the symptoms of schizophrenia we are used to understanding. Uh-huh. The majority of culture sees schizophrenia as the paranoid schizophrenia, mm-hmm. or maybe even catatonic. You know, paranoid being you're hearing voices mm-hmm. and they're compelling you to certain actions. Catatonic being you're so lost in thought you, that you you're, just don't move. You're you don't lifeless. move. And if, if you are moved, you stay in that position. Yeah. But there is, and it was funny because I was just, randomly going down a YouTube rabbit hole, there is a type of schizophrenia, which is sort of a later stage in life mm-hmm. where it is this constant verbal thought process. Almost manic energy. Exactly. The words don't connect together, mm-hmm. don't make sense, but there is a there is some sort of stream of consciousness going on. Yeah, I did love the scene where he's saying that he wants to write a letter and Cynthia's like, oh, okay, dear. Yeah, like she's pulling it out. She's she can get like that's a beautiful it's scene. It's so good. Because like, how do you write that on a page? But she, it's it's that thing of 
he's he's gone through these several different people mm-hmm. who love him and are caring for him. Beryl cannot handle him. He's too much for Beryl alone. And then, you know, <laughs> Sylvia loves him and will take care of him, but doesn't get him. And it's only until Cynthia comes to him and goes, no, I understand you. I can see through this matrix of stuff. <laughs> right. Of words. And, and, you know, there's this constant mm-hmm. thought process, but then she's able to find, you're saying, dear, okay. Yeah. And then going down the list. So, of course, this, this was his first, I mean, any kind of major film role. Mm-hmm. He had a couple of things in the 80s, but nothing. He was a stage actor, purely. And then this, of course, broke him. And then he was cemented as a star with Elizabeth and, and Shakespeare, Shakespeare in Love. Love. I, I saw Elizabeth, but I think I saw Shakespeare in Love first. I think most people did. Also, Which I really enjoyed. That movie's really good. And he's really good at it. And I swear to God, Tom Stoppard must have written, I don't know, it's a mystery <laughs> from this movie. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Because now looking at this, I was like, wait, he says that so much in this. I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. I forget that Tom Stoppard wrote that movie. Oh, that's why it's so good. I know. It's so great. Did not deserve best picture. No. The only reason that movie is good is the script. <laughs> I know. Oh, that... That movie lives on that page, which is great because it's about Shakespeare. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, after this, he does Mystery Men, Quills, The Tailor of Panama, Frida, Ned Kelly, Finding Nemo, Pirates of the Caribbean, all of them. Marquis de Sade. Munich, Elizabeth of the Golden Age, The King's Speech, The Book Thief, and most recently, Albert Einstein in Genius. He's hot shit. And then, on top of this amazing performance, mm-hmm. which I could not keep myself from revealing. Yeah, because that was going to be my first question. He performed as his own hand double at the piano. Fuck. He had trained to play piano until he was 14 years old from a very young age. Okay. so And yeah. as part of this movie, took it back up. That makes sense. And trained himself so that he could be his own hand double for those pieces. Great. He did not have to play The Rock 3. No. So obviously yeah, it was a little is. bit easier. Yeah. It's it's insane. And what's really interesting is Scott Hicks talking about that mm-hmm. and talking about his his theatrical training mm-hmm. really kicking in for this body double performance because it gave Hicks so much freedom in yeah. how he used his camera. Because you can watch both his hands and his face, and that's a huge part of watching a pianist. Of course. Like their hands are fascinating. But their face, and then also the way that David plays, he's hunched over. I mean, most pianists that you see are typically very, like, straight back. That is not how David plays. David has his face in the keys. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like, who cares? He gets it done. It's amazing. So you get to feel all that and watch it happen. And that's, I mean, you can't do that if somebody is, you know, got a hand double. Yeah. And Scott Hicks forever credits him for giving him that amount of latitude because he said, at that point, me and the cinematographer were able to come up with just all these crazy shot ideas we wanted to do. And they said, you know, if you really look at how this movie shot, mm-hmm. Pacing wise, of course, it feels like sort of a slow, methodical biopic. Yeah. But the actual shots and the way they're mm-hmm. structured is so oddball and anathema to how you normally make a movie. Yep. And that's because they had all this creative freedom, mm-hmm. especially in that part of the story. Now, the two younger actors could not do that same amount of work. Fair. Especially, there was no way Noah Taylor could have pulled off playing Rachmaninoff's third. Well, 
well, if he had a background similar to Jeffrey Rush's and had the time to prepare, he probably could have done some of it. Some of it, yeah. (laughs) But also, that music is so fucking insane. And it's so good. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and the other cool thing is Rachmaninoff had a mental breakdown, too. So, <laughs> At 43, mm-hmm. the studios were unwilling to back a movie for Jeffrey Rush. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They considered him washed up as a film actor. Of course. Who makes their debut on film when they're 40? Jeffrey Rush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With an Oscar, bitch. And Hicks just said, I made the conviction that an Australian needed to play him. Absolutely. I was not going to get a British actor. I was not going to get anybody. I wanted a true Australian actor to come in and play this role. And he said, all of Rush's theatrical work had been, he said, he specialized in characters who seemed to have strange minds or wander along the fine edges of sanity. That's accurate. And and that was his bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So he just fought hard all the time to get this movie made and when you see the opening credits you see there's like six different random australian financers yeah when we went and saw upgrade that was such a small movie like you see nothing like it's this production and this because it's all these little tiny people coming together to make this thing and this was even crazier than that because it's like four basically grants Mm -hmm. by small australian provinces Just so they, they could, wanted to see it get made. Just so they could it. get the backing to do this movie. Oh, there was a who could have been better. Okay. There was an American actor who really was also inspired by David Helfgott and thought he wanted to play this role. Okay, who is it? Dustin Hoffman. Fuck no. <laughs> First of all, fuck that dude forever. Fuck that dude forever. He already did this role. Rain Man. Yeah. Rain Man. Yeah, which he's great in. You, like... One, don't do it again. Like, you get to do one character like this in your life. And also, I understand being inspired and considering the option. Like, I understand the performer's challenge. Uh Uh-huh. I totally get being intrigued by that because that is kind of Dustin Hoffman's thing. He wants the challenge. Okay, I'm fine with that. I respect that. But fuck you, no. (laughs) Eat a bag of dicks. No. Jeffrey Jeffrey Rush will forever be tied to this character. Yes. Next up. Armin Mueller-Stahl as Peter Helfgott. <sighs> that dude, when he shows up, he's amazing. He took this role purely off the script. He had no other context other mm-hmm. than he read this script and went, it's amazing. Oh, which and is great he, he plays a horrible person. And he does, but I love his quote about it. He mm-hmm. actually was drawn to the role because mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. because of that relationship and said, we see in Peter how too much love can destroy. Mm-hmm. As a child, Peter had wanted to play the violin, but his father wouldn't allow it. So he is trying to be the opposite of his father by pushing his son to be a great pianist. He's doing the exact same thing. But he's a very strong person and he pushes too hard. Yeah, he's doing the exact same thing his father did, just in a completely different direction. Exactly. Yeah, like, no, I've been on the receiving end of that. Mm -hmm. There is an interesting thing in, you came away from the movie very much like he's evil and he's awful. I mean, he's a jackass. Yes. There's no question. No, he's, he's a terrible human. Like, I get that's the reason why he is this way. But even the ending with him, where he, like, finally comes to see his son, like, gives him his medal... It's so, it's not satisfying. It's so, it's still unresolved. And honestly, I kind of read that scene as David seeing that as a vision, but it not being real. 
because of how quick he disappears, uh-huh. I almost felt like that was a he was never really there. I wouldn't surprise me. Like I don't I don't care. Especially because we don't know what's fully real or not with the True. impressionistic. But thing. it's so I don't know. I don't I don't like it. It's not resolved no, in any form or fashion. And it's not supposed to be. And that's okay. And like but, it doesn't it doesn't matter to David. No. I think the thing that in context for this movie that I think is interesting is his heritage and clearly mm. coming from Germany yep. after the war. Mm-hmm. That is an element that the whole time for me watching this movie, you know, you could watch this and just think, oh, he's such a horrible father. And it was like, yes, but he watched mil- he watched so many people they, he knew. He fled Germany. Er, he, well, he fled Poland. Right. They're Polish. He saw so many of his friends disappear yeah, and it's no, it's no. why he's lost his jewish faith well there's that and then that's also why it's like you can't leave like you're dead to me exactly. if you leave i get i totally get like it for him it's abandonment of course which i get and so i mean his his abuse notwithstanding because that's in no way is it okay but the complexity that they play with this character is so interesting it could just be simply he's an awful person, mm-hmm. but it's not. There's a lot of tension in his character. Oh, there's the fuck ton of tension in that character. That's like mostly his character, but I just, I don't, like, he's a wonderful, I don't love his, I don't love that part of the movie. Mm. Like, I don't. That's I don't, fair. I that, I found it interesting. That's a part it could have been improved. I found it interesting on this watch. Mm-hmm. He did basically German stage and film stuff forever. But really broke through with 1990s Avalon. After this, he also does 12 Angry Men, the 1997 version, The Game, The X-Files movie, Jacob the Liar, Eastern Promises, The International Angels and Demons, and his last role in 2015 was the Terrence Malick film Knight of Cups. Do you want a who could have been better? Sure. Bob Hoskins. He's Australian, right? He is British. Okay, he's well, you know, well, it's easy to confuse those two things. It's true, but he is very Sorry popular. other countries. We <laughs> suck. We know it. We suck. In terms of acting and performance, they're just about equal. Yes, I'm just I'm trying to think of him with Noah Taylor. Uh, no. but 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 the edge to me is given to Armin because of the of the accent and the cultural identity. Oh, I want Armin. Of course. Yeah. But for me, what pushes it over isn't so much the the, match as it's there's a natural element of him being an immigrant father. Sure. Sure. That plays so perfectly against Noah Mm -hmm. Taylor being an Australian. No, no, I'm I'm fine with all that. But it's it's an interest Bob Hoskins is an interesting one. I mean, he'll always be Shmee for me, so (laughs) Shmee. We have our two other Davids. Okay. We'll just mention Alex Rafalowitz mm-hmm. was David as a child. He okay. was seven at the time he filmed this movie. Tall seven-year-old. A little bit. I mean, we have one of those, but yeah. They cast him mostly from his looks. Okay, that's fair. But all of the producers kept commenting that he was incredibly receptive on set and really absorbed the direction he got to try to really reflect on it, which is huge for a seven-year-old oh, for, yeah, kid. Yeah, seven-year-old, yeah. Like- I think that plays that he really does, he, he seems like he's a little bit of a kid, mm-hmm. just kind of doing the motions, but you also see the sense, I mean- There's a lot more going on in there. Just that, yeah. I'm going to win, I'm going to win. Did he do anything else? No. Well, that's, that's fair. A couple of indip- indie projects, okay. but like he has almost no credits that's fine. other than this. He, went, he grew up and had a life. More importantly is David as an adolescent and young yes. adult. 
Yes. Noah Taylor. So dude's like, you know who that is? And I was like, yes, I know that, that guy's mouth is so recognizable. And then I remembered, fuck, what's his name? He was on Game of Thrones. I just watched his episodes because I'm rewatching Game of Thrones. <laughs> Noah Taylor. Yeah, that dude. So he had actually worked with Jeffrey Rush a year before. Okay. And it was funny because Jeffrey Rush, a lot of people thought, well, this is your movie. Why are you sharing such equal time with these other actors? Mm-hmm. And Rush basically bought into the, that that part of his story is just as important it as is. the part I'm portraying. It's true. And we need a good actor to do that same thing. Sure. Noah Taylor had actually been brought to a mainstream Australian audience with two coming of age dramas, mm-hmm. The Year My Voice Broke and flirting back in the 80s and got basically Australian Oscars for both of those. I I don't know about any of those. Along with Australian actor Ben Mendelsohn, who you've seen in Star Wars and Ready Player One recently. and Who who does he play in Ready Player One? The corporate bad guy. Oh, okay, yeah, that dude. And the big bad general in Rogue One. Yeah, okay. So Ben Mendelsohn was also part of this young Australian crew. He's Australian? Yeah. Oh, okay. Noah Taylor's Australian. Damn you, Australians and Brits and your accent amazingness. Oh, fuck you. But I just found that interesting that like as a young actor, he already had a ton of acclaim. That's great. And was in these pretty high profile He had more acclaim than movies. like the lead of the movie. Yeah, kind of. I don't know, that's great. No, well, I, think, I love it. I love it. I think Jeffrey Rush was pretty famous. He was famous in Australia, but, but not he as just, a film actor. But not, he wasn't a film actor at all. He becomes a character villain mainstay. Mm-hmm. So after this, he's in Almost Famous, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Vanilla Sky. He was young Adolf Hitler in Max okay. with John Cusack. Tomb Raider Creative Life, The Life Aquatic. He was Mr. Bucket and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Oh, he was. <gasps> that man has not aged. No. Fuck. Lock in Game of Thrones, yeah. Edge of Tomorrow, Peaky Blinders, Free Fire, Paddington 2, Skyscraper, and he is now going to be in a TV reboot of the film Hana. Yep. He, I love him with the long hair and I love the glasses. The glasses. Ugh. <laughs> So good. No, he's he's remarkable. I love the rocking at the piano. I love His... how very subtly mm-hmm. you are watching the symptoms manifest as he's learning the rock three. Mm-hmm. It's amplifying what was already going wrong. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing is, we don't know, had he been given different circumstances, how things would have manifested. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's probably pretty certain that he would have had some kind of breakdown because he's schizophrenic. At some point, he would have. This just amplified what was going on. Exactly. And his obsessive nature just fueled that. Yeah. And so just slowly at the Royal College, just watching those little ticks start to come yeah, it's, and it's, form. It's that stress on the body that just starts to deteriorate other things. So your ability to cope, like, I mean, we, we see it all the time. Somebody you know has a traumatic event and then all of a sudden, you know, we find out they have cancer or they break their leg. And it's just like whatever was holding them up is gone. Yeah. Like that whole thing in the system is gone. He's great. He's oh, he's magnificent. I will mention Googie Withers as Catherine Susanna Pritchard. That's an unfortunate name. I know. But she's very, very it's famous serious. British actress, apparently. Yeah. A lot of older credits, mostly stage work. This mm-hmm. was her final film role. Mm-hmm. She started making movies in 1935. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. And that was... Who is this playing? Catherine Pritchard, the, the leader of the Communist Party lady that 
teen David befriends the old lady oh, that he's with. Yes. Okay. Sorry, I was confused with the names. <laughs> we have Sir John Gilgood as Cecil Parks. He's cool. So he's a legend. Mm-hmm. He's a screen legend. I don't know. His first screen credit was 1924. Back when it was all silent. And he was always a very prominent stage actor. Mm-hmm. And in the 1950s, picked up his film career. And I wrote here, Julius Caesar in 1953, Romeo and Juliet in 54, Richard III in 1955. Mm-hmm. He's in Around the World in 80 Days, St. Joan, Beckett, Chimes at Midnight, which was the Falstaff film that Orson Welles made. Okay. Julius Caesar again in 1970. The 74 Murder on the Orient Express, Caligula, The Elephant Man, The Formula, Chariots of Fire, Arthur. I get it. I get it. I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) I get it. And also after this, Dragonheart. Okay. Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, 1998's Merlin. And he was the Pope in Elizabeth before he passed away in 2000. No, he's great. I like how he's stern, but loving. He's, he's very much the father figure that David needed. He's stern in a very playful way. Yeah. I mean, he's a stern but playful. I silly. know. Just just that, you know, him flipping the pages. The notes on the page, David. Yes. Learn them. And then forget them. Yes. And then and, and then forget them? Yes. yes. <laughs> like, no, he's very stern and like, I expect you to do things well, but then like, you need to feel it. Like, part of this whole thing is you have to feel it. And then he's taking him through and he's showing them Rachmaninoff's hands and all that stuff. Like, that's the dad he needed. Yes. So it's just a shame that it came so late in his life. Yep. And again, it was all the script. Mm-hmm. John Gilgood saw it and was like, I-, I need to do this. I can do this. Let's go. And finally, Lynn Redgrave. As, ah, a Redgrave. And I have been saying Cynthia this whole time. It is Jillian. God. Jillian. Gillian? It might be Gillian. It's Gillian. Of course, sister of Vanessa Redgrave. Okay. Daughter of Michael Redgrave. Uh-huh. She was also a stage and screen actress, but not as prominent as her sister was, for sure. No. Before this, she was in Tom Jones, Georgie Girl, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Too Afraid to Ask. Okay. And The Happy Hooker. (laughs) After this, she appeared in Gods and Monsters, Spider, Kinsey, and did a lot of guest spots on television. Okay. She actually jumped at the chance for this movie to work in Australia because her grandfather had stayed there for quite some time. Hmm. And her father had toured Australia, so she's already very familiar with the country and really liked it. Okay. And then John Gilgood was a very close family friend because Michael Redgrave's also a big deal stage actor. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, well, I love John, so yeah, I'll do it. Let's do it. Okay. But she said, because of Jeffrey's theatrical work, we were able to immediately form a bond. I knew he understood the character. He understood the seriousness of really crafting the role. Yeah. And so they were able to immediately establish the chemistry and relationship they needed. Mm -hmm. She's so beautiful in this movie. She really is. is. She's just, she's lovely because she's, there's never this feeling where it's almost like she's fetishizing him. No. Because it would be so easy to be like, oh, well, she gets to take care of him. And like that gets kind of creepy and weird and like the mothering role. But it's just more of like, I just, I love his gift and I understand him. And that, and like, I love the whole like, she already had a dude. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, consult stars. <laughs> and she's just like, well, this, 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 the stars say we got to do this. Like, come on, all right, we're going. 
their wedding night is the most adorable thing ever. Oh, it's so cute. It reminds me of the 40-year-old version, too. It's just like, oh, I love it. I love it. I love it when old people get to have sex. It's great. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we moved too fast. No, no, no. You're totally fine. Totally fine. <laughs> it's just everything about those two, when she shows up, she gets him. Yeah. And he immediately goes, Oh my God! You actually understand me. Yeah. I love you. Yeah. No, it's perfect. It's yeah, it's precious. All right, trivia. Near the end of the film, the real Gillian Helfgott can be seen in the lower left screen, rising with the audience. Oh, nice, nice. The title comes from "Shine on You, Crazy Diamond" by Pink Floyd, mm. which was written after the original band leader Sid Barrett similarly suffered symptoms of schizophrenia. And went into Recluse and was also a musical genius. Hmm, okay. And, of course, as you mentioned, the ties to Rachmaninoff. Mm-hmm. Both were child prodigies. Okay. Both had international acclaim as teenagers. Mm-hmm. Both had an incredibly long period of withdrawal due to mental illness. And then both went through very experimental treatments mm-hmm. before coming yeah. back to public life. So the parallel between those two that was, I don't even think, intentional in his life. It's just one of those coincidences that you can't write. No. But it just happens. It's, you know, like you may think, oh, well, that's why they did that. No, this actually happened. It's it's like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda talking about for Hamilton, Eliza. Well, of course, the wife of the orphan opens an orphanage and like, yeah, that's sweet. Like, no, that actually happened. Yeah. That's what they did. Some, I mean, sometimes the truth is a bit ridiculous and on the nose and you're just like, well, whatever. Like, I can't. Some people get happy, sweet, like... All tied up in a bow stories. That's okay. Yep. Awards. Awards. This movie only won one award. I knew that. I knew this was it. So, best actor. Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush wins this year. Okay. We had Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire. Boo. Billy Bob Thornton in Sling Blade. Ray Fiennes in The English Patient. Oh, fuck. I forgot this year. (laughs) And Woody Harrelson in The People vs. Larry Flint. Okay, I've never seen I've never seen any of these movies. Neither have well, they, I. No, that's not true. I've seen Jerry Maguire. Okay. It's stupid. I know. I uh, don't understand, but I guess we, maybe they were just charmed by we Cameron Crowe. Need Crow. to see the English Patient at some point. Yeah, probably. God. On the other hand, it might just be the Oscar baitiest of Oscar bait movies. Mm, hello. It's just like on the other end, it's supposed to be pretty sexy. I know. So like, why not? I know. And I do. I want to see Sling Blade. I think I've seen so many parodies, parodies and impersonations of it. I feel like I've seen the movie, but I know I haven't actually seen it. No. By default, and because he's amazing, Jeffrey Rush wins because he's better than Tom Cruise. But that is a pretty tough. That's a good. That's a that good. Year. That's a good. That's a good slate. Supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Nominated were William H. Macy for Fargo, James Woods for Ghost of Mississippi, Edward Norton for Primal Fear, and Armin Mueller-Stahl for Shine. No Noah Taylor? No. He should have been nominated. Remember who the winner was this year? It was um, William H. Macy. Cuba Gooding Jr. for Jerry Maguire. We just said Jerry Maguire. This is Maguire. Maguire. Uh, Uh This is when Cuba did his somersaults on stage. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, that was a good speech. Like, I'm not going to lie. It was enjoyable to watch somebody be that excited to win. But. But that's garbage. William H. Macy, Macy should have that fucking Oscar. Does He has one, right? I don't know. I don't know if he has one or not. 
He should have had one for that movie. My God, he's amazing. All right, Best Picture, it was nominated. Sure. Along with Fargo, Mm -hmm. Jerry Maguire, Mm -hmm. and Secrets and Lies. But the winner was The English Patient. Oh, fuck. I I watched this Oscars. I remember watching it. (laughs) God damn it. Directing. Alongside Scott Hicks for Shine, nominated were Joel Cohen for Fargo, Mike Lee for Secrets and Lies, Mm -hmm. and Milos Forman for The People vs. Larry Flint. Mm -hmm. The winner was Anthony Minghella for The English Patient. Editing nominated Evita, which is brilliantly edited. I will give them credit for I've never seen it. Fargo, Jerry Maguire, and Shine. The winner was The English Patient. Mm -hmm. And then Original Screenplay. Mm Mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe, Jerry Maguire, John Sayles for Lone Star, Mike Lee for Secrets and Lies, Jan Sandian, Scott Hicks, nominated for Shine, the winner, Ethan Cohen and Joel Cohen for Fargo. I knew Fargo won something, because it won that, and then What's-Her-Face won. It, make, it makes sense for, for original screenplay and no, not no, Best I, Picture. I, I'm going to give it to Fargo. Yeah. Like, but William H. Macy should have had that support. Uh, yeah, William actor. H. Macy. Fuck you, Cuba. <laughs> William H. Macy. With Armin, with Armin being like the secondary, he was really great and deserved the nomination. Sure, thing. yeah, no. You deserve to be amongst the group, but no, no statue for you. How many flights of the Bumblebee will you give this movie? <laughs> and it's my movie, so I have to go first. Exactly. This is hard for me because there is a part of me that wants to say, well, this is this is obviously a five. Everybody should go see it. But that's not the truth. No. The movie itself is not a five. It's it's not Rockies. Though I feel like everybody should go out and watch this performance. Fair. It doesn't have to be a perfect movie for people to need to see it. I think it's a four. Okay. Because I agree that it's a little bit slow, but as long as you know that and prepare yourself for that, Mm -hmm. you can get so absorbed by how this movie moves and Mm -hmm. how it tells its story. And then, like I said, the last third of the movie is so shockingly filled with joy yeah. for what's been a pretty tragic story. Mm-hmm. You're expecting it to go... Painful story. A painful story. Yeah, you're expecting it to just kind of go dark like biopics can do, and instead it's just joyful, and I love it. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a four for me. I'm going to go with a 3.5. Okay. For similar things, I'm going to say if one star is purely for Jeffrey Rush, one star is purely for Noah Taylor. So the other star and a half is just because it's it's a beautiful story. Yes. And it is well told. And so while it does move a little slow, and I, you know, there's some storytelling things that I would change. It is a beautiful movie. It's great. And people should see it. Yeah. So. What's up next time? Next time I'm going to torture David with the musical. No. <laughs> Time for Dream Girls. Which, when I saw this film, I did not know it was a musical on Broadway first. Like, I just didn't, which is sad and pathetic for me personally. <laughs> but I didn't know. I've since been corrected. I'm, I'm aware now. But I really enjoyed it. But I thought I was seeing a Beyonce movie. That's not what we're watching. No, you were not watching a Beyonce movie. That's for sure. I mean, I knew it was a musical, but I thought, like, this is all about the Beyonce character. It is not. <laughs> So, yeah. It'll be interesting to hear what you have to say. Yeah, it will, because I am tough on musicals. I know, and that's fair. I'm tough on everything. (laughs) All right, well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks 
for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Pianist David Helfgott, driven by his father and teachers, has a breakdown. Years later, he returns to the piano. God damn it, Diane. <laughs> he said penist. I he said, said pianist. No, it was penist. All right, fine. Okay, try again. <laughs> Hello, phallus. <laughs> I just, I couldn't. I just, let's go with it. <laughs> Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha